war is terrible. It's literally hell. And you are going to have to do things in war. You're going to have to make decisions that are not life or death decisions, but that are life and death decisions, meaning that you're making decisions that somebody will live and somebody else will die. And then you have to live with those decisions. And the moral injury that that causes uh, can be really hard for good people to deal with. Welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast, where we believe the most fulfilled life you could live is one full of giving dams. I'm Nick LaPara, your host and your pal. Thanks for joining me today. I can't wait for you to hear my conversation today because today you'll get to listen in on my chat with combat-decorated former Marine Corps officer Zach Iskol. Zach served two tours in Iraq and he took on other infantry and special operations assignments throughout Africa, the Middle East, and Central Asia. He's the founder and CEO of Higher Purpose, a company that provides personalized career guidance, job market analysis, and helps connect veterans, military service members, and their spouses to the right jobs and careers. Super important work. He's also the chairman and the co-founder of Headstrong, a nonprofit that has developed comprehensive mental health care programs to treat Iraq and Afghanistan veterans free of cost, stigma, and bureaucracy. You'll hear him talk a lot more about these in our chat. Also, he's a film director. He started a blog and resource called Task and Purpose that is wildly popular. The list goes on and on and on. My conclusion is that Zach is a badass, and I hope that'll be your conclusion by the end of our chat. Okay, this intro has gone on long enough. Let's get right into my chat with Zach Iskol. Let's go. Zach Iskol, welcome to the podcast and good morning. Yeah, good morning. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for taking the time to be here. We have so much to get into. I was going to read off your bio here at the beginning, but that would probably take up all the time we have together today because you've done a lot. Um, So we'll get into it bit by bit, piece by piece here in a little bit. Before we start getting into the things you've done, the things that you're currently doing, clearly a damn giver, and I'm excited about sharing some of the things you're doing with uh, the podcast listeners. Before we get into that, why don't we start with some context and some story? I always love to start this way because you telling a little bit of your story, whatever pieces you want to share with us, always gives us a little more context as to the person you are today. So go back, Zach, as far as you want to, and give us all the the people, the places, the things that happened that shaped you, who you are today. And if you can, just when you're telling that story, stop short of all the things you're currently doing. We'll get into those piece by piece. Wow, that is a big question and one I wish I had had more time to think about. So, you know, I think when I think about my earliest influences, it's definitely my parents. Um, I came from a family where my dad was a successful businessman and entrepreneur. And I had a mom who was uh, a teacher and educator and uh, later on became really involved in, in a lot of different causes. And um, my mom, I like to say, would be the most successful venture capitalist of all time if she chose to go into venture capital. But instead, she uh, started working with a lot of early stage nonprofits that went on to become some of the most successful, largest nonprofits in the country um, in a variety of sort of industries. And I think there was just something about the two of them, the entrepreneurship, 
the social entrepreneurship aspect of the stuff my mom was doing. And then also, um, my dad was an adventurer. Um, he was always traveling around the world, especially, uh, before I was born. My parents were married in Nepal. My mom was actually pregnant with me at the time. Um, so I think there was that influence as well growing up that, um, that I had this adventure bug as well. So I'm not surprised anymore. Now that you've told me about your parents, why you turned out the way that you did. Clearly a lot of giving a damn in your family, clearly a lot of adventure, um, some risk taking there, all of that for sure influenced who you are today. And where is all this taking place? Like where are we geographically? I know you said you were in your mother's womb in Nepal, but where did you grow up for the most part? So I grew up in uh, Pound Ridge, New York, which is a small town about an hour and a half north of New York City, um, and now live in the city. Um, I'm not a city person, but my wife loves New York, and I love my wife, and so I am a there you go. person now. Do you have to get out of the city every once in a while to go, whatever, climb a mountain or hike somewhere or what, what whatever? I do. I, I need to figure out a way to get into the ocean, to get up on top of a mountain, to uh, see the horizon. Um, I start to wilt if I'm in the city too long. And um, before my knees went out, my wife would say if I started to get too grumpy, she'd just kick me out of the city for a couple of days and I'd come back and be back to the perfect husband and perfect man that she, she chose to marry. <laughs> well, there you go. You guys know each other super well. That's awesome. So let's get into your military background. What was that like? What caused you, prompted you to get involved there? Because really, from me observing what you've done and what you've gone on to do, a lot of that was influenced by, heavily influenced, directly influenced by your time in the military. So tell us about that. Yeah. So, you know, I have a, a lot of folks in my family served. I come from sort of a typical Jewish family. My my family immigrated here uh, between the 1880s and 1910s. Most of them lived on the Lower East Side. But my, my dad's dad had served in World War II. Uh, he passed away when my dad was 13. And my dad's stepfather, uh, who became, who was like my grandfather growing up, uh, Papa Lou, he was a tank driver um, in North Africa and Europe during World War II. Um, as a Jewish kid in New York, you know, I grew up around Holocaust survivors. My dad uh, came from a Gold Star family. So his uncle was killed uh, when his bomber was shot down over Europe in World War II. So I grew up with a lot of the greatest generation, a lot of these stories from World War II. And that really left a, a big impact. And I knew at some point in time, I knew, I knew I wanted to serve my country. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know if it meant the Marine Corps, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force. And um, when I got to college, I went to Cornell University. Um, I started playing a sport called lightweight football, which is uh, football for people who are smaller than your average football player. It's a varsity okay. sport, 11 on 11. It's not tag team football. It's real football. But the coach there is a guy named uh, Coach Terry Cullen. And Terry um, was a Marine officer in Vietnam. He was badly wounded um, in Vietnam, uh, received the Silver Star, was a war hero. And he was probably one of my most important mentors um, in my life and certainly at that age. And as I was thinking about joining the military, he really encouraged me to, to join the Marine Corps. Um, and so that's sort of how I found my way into, into the Marines. And how long were you in the Marines? Was Marines your only 
you were just part of the Marines when you were in the military? Yeah. So I, I was commissioned August 11th, 2001, uh, exactly one month before okay. 9-11. Oh, wow. I went to officer candidate school over the summers while I was in college. So the Marine Corps has a program that you can go to officer candidate school over the summer while you're in college. Um, and so I did that. Graduated, uh, was commissioned August 11th, 2001. A month later, we're at war. I was actually slated to go to flight school when I joined the Marines. And uh, this is insane, but I was, if you go to flight school, it's three years, two to three years. I was worried if I went to flight school, I was going to miss the war. And uh, so I dropped my flight contract to go into the infantry. I served uh, in the infantry, and then I had an opportunity to help build the 1st Marine Special Operations Unit. And I got out at the end of 2007, beginning of 2008. So I come from a family. It's funny you mentioned that. You come from a, a long history of you know uh, people that served in the military of, of all you know kinds. I am the exact opposite. So I grew up all over the world as well. My story involves... 30 plus countries of travel living outside the US for 15 years, lots of travel, but none of nobody that I know. And I, I was actually in preparation for this call. I was thinking about my relatives and doing some research and nobody that I know was in the military. So I have a question, like when you looked back over all these, you know, amazing people in your family that have served, did you feel any pressure to keep the legacy going when you went into the military or was it, was it really your thing? Like you really wanted to do it. You would have done it regardless of uh, whether they were in or not. I, I think I probably would have done it regardless. I, I mean, I think it's, it's a calling. Um, it, and I, and I also, I couldn't imagine myself doing anything else in my twenties, you know, and I, I have friends who are, are some of my closest friends um, who graduated from school and went into investment banking or, and I just, I couldn't imagine spending my twenties tied to a desk. Um, and so I think there's like yourself, there is a, a part of it that is, is adventure based, travel based. It also gives meaning and purpose to you. I mean, there's other ways of finding meaning and purpose in your life, but I think it's, it's a, it's a pretty easy one to do. Uh, and so I think no matter what I would have, I like to think I would have found myself in the military. It certainly was conversations I had with my folks. They had their concerns, especially after 9-11. My mom, who is turning 70 this year, looks younger now than she did the day I came home from Fallujah. That's from, for sure. And that was, you know, 14, 15 years ago. Um, but regardless, it's it's definitely something I think I would have I would have done regardless. Got it. Okay, we're going to come back in a few minutes because I, I do want to ask you about how you were shaped and formed as a leader in the military because I think a lot of those things I don't even know what you're going to say, but I already know that some of the things you're going to say will help everyone listening um, that wants to give a damn, wants to do something meaningful with their lives. But before we get to there, let's talk about what you're doing right now because you're doing. You're doing a shit ton of amazing things. Like I'm looking, I'm like doing some research and I'm like, you keep popping up in all these different things. And so headstrong, higher purpose, task and purpose, you're on all these boards. Give us kind of a, yeah, kind of the helicopter view of what you're doing and why you're doing it. Because maybe you're not as busy as you appear to be online uh, with all these things you have going on, but I'm sure you are. And so why, what prompted you and kind of in what order also, give us, you know, you came out of the military, what was post-military life look like and how did you, uh, you know, get into these different projects? First off, um, 
this is not a, a not a bullshit answer. I really do get to work with just remarkable people. And so when people say, oh, you know, you're really busy, you're doing higher headstrong, you're doing higher purpose, you're doing tasking purpose, you do these boards. It's really because I work with remarkable people um, That's awesome. who are really doing, you know, most of the heavy lifting and most of the work. And so um, what I do is I um, run a nonprofit and I run a B Corps. Uh, the nonprofit is called the Headstrong Project. We provide world-class mental health care to Iraq and Afghanistan veterans. We are in 18 cities, um, and we provide treatment that is immediate. It's highly effective. It's cost-free, bureaucracy-free, and um, as I said, most importantly, it's effective. And I can t- I'll talk more about Headstrong in a second. And then the other thing that I do is um, I started a business uh, about four, four and a half years ago, Uh, called Higher Purpose. So my last job in the Marine Corps, I had the opportunity to help build the the recruiting, screening, assessment, and selection program for Marine Special Operations. That's Everybody's heard of the Navy SEALs Hell Week, which is the Navy SEALs selection process for their unit. This is the equivalent for the Marine Corps. And so I had this background in assessment and selection and recruiting I knew I wanted to start my own business, and I figured, well, why don't I take that skill set and help businesses hire world-class military talent? And so about four or four and a half years ago, we launched a company called Higher Purpose that helps uh, now about 20% of the Fortune 500 hire military talent, service members, veterans, military spouses. And when we launched that, we had a blog that started to take off. It started to build its own community. A lot of the stories we're writing went viral and that was called task and purpose. And so we spun that out as a separate site that's now grown into one of the largest digital uh, media lifestyle sites for the military and veterans community. And then we acquired an events business. So I essentially I run a, a media group called grid North that's comprised of the job site, higher purpose, the digital media lifestyle site called task and purpose and an events business in partnership with USAA that does events for military families and spouses around the country. And we do about 18 events a year. So those are the two things I run. I run Headstrong and I run the media group. And sort of how I fell into that was, uh, it's kind of a funny story. I was raising money for my business. um, And my business at that point was really just a concept. And I met with two investors, a guy named Al Rabel and a guy named Dave Petruco, who are really, really successful investors. And a couple days earlier, I had had a conversation with my former battalion commander, a guy named Colonel Willie Buell, and we'd had a number of suicides in my battalion. So my battalion was one of the hardest hit battalions of the Iraq war. We lost 33 Marines in the second battle of Fallujah, half the battalion, about 500 men were wounded. And we had, at this point, had a number of suicides. I think at that point, we'd had about 20 suicides in the battalion. Wow. So 33 killed in action, 20 suicides. We knew at some point we'd have more suicides than those we'd lost to enemy action. And we've now lost, I think the last count was 27 or 28 Marines to suicide. So Colonel Buell and I talked about this. He was incredibly concerned. And I'll I'll talk more about Colonel Buell in a minute, but... I then recounted that conversation to these two investors and they became very uninterested in my brilliant business idea and very interested in how do we solve this problem. Hmm. And one of them, Al Rabel, made this comment. He said, you know, that if, if he could see the top psychiatrist in New York City tomorrow morning, no matter how busy that psychiatrist was, no matter what their rates were, no matter whether they accepted insurance or didn't accept insurance, 
why couldn't veterans get the same type of care that an Al Rabel or Dave Petruco could get? And could we do that? And so we formed a partnership with Cornell Medical Center. We raised a small amount of money. We started treating veterans in New York. And uh, we started to see that it was very successful. And then about two and a half, three years ago, we made a decision to see if we could expand our program outside New York City. And we're now in 18 cities with about 400 veterans in treatment today. That's amazing. What areas of the country are you in just for, I mean, I guess people can go on your website, but just in case anybody's listening that would wants to explore this. Yeah. So the website's getheadstrong.org. Uh, we're in New York. We just launched in Philadelphia. We are in Albany, Buffalo, uh, Ithaca, uh, Syracuse. We're in Washington, D.C. We are in San Diego, Los Angeles, Houston, Texas, Denver, Colorado Springs. Uh, we're expanding to the Pacific Northwest soon in San Francisco and to Virginia Beach and Norfolk uh, are next up on our expansion. And Chicago. That's amazing. Kind of a wide, a widespread. That's awesome. Question about veterans. Why... In your opinion, you just shared that question that was posed. I forget his name, but why he said, like, why can I walk in to get this today and they can't? On any given day on Facebook, you can see tons of videos about, you know, military uh, leaders coming home and, you know, meeting their families. And we're, it kind of gets us where it counts and we're all excited and crying and blah, blah, blah. But then when they actually get back here, why is that happening? Is that is that civilians doing that or is that the government not doing a good job or where is this breaking down? That's a billion dollar question. Sure. Um, right. The, yeah. If, if you knew the answer to that question, we could fix this shit, right? Right. I, I think one of the things that, so, so first off, I'd say there is no more remarkable community than the military community, right? If, if you're an employer and you're trying to hire from this community, this is literally people who it's the only job in the world where your job is to take a bullet for somebody else, right? So it's not like I messed up at work, like, or somebody messed up on our team, I'll take the bullet. It is literally, these are people who take bullets for each other. Um, and you think about what kind of person that is. And, and then there's also this amazing statistic that 76% of young Americans, 18 to 24 year olds cannot join today's military because they don't meet the recruiting standards. They're not smart enough educated enough, fit enough, or they have criminal records or a history of drug use that preclude them from joining the military. So it's the top 24% of young Americans, it's people who are willing to take bullets for each other. These are the best and brightest of a generation. They're the types of people you want working at your companies. Now, one of the challenges is, is when you send really, really good, decent people to war, war is terrible. It's literally hell. And you are going to have to do things in war. You're going to have to make decisions that are not life or death decisions, but that are life and death decisions, meaning that you're making decisions that somebody will live and somebody else will die, and then you have to live with those decisions. And the moral injury that that causes uh, can be really hard for good people to deal with, um, and it requires help when you're transitioning home. The other part of it is to be good at war, it causes you to have to uh, increase different survival and coping mechanisms that can lead to trauma, which is what PTSD is. And the good news is, is all of this is treatable. Post-traumatic stress disorder is 100% treatable. Moral injuries are over; you can overcome um, if you get the right treatment. Now, one of the things that makes Headstrong different than other treatment organizations is that we don't we we are zero bureaucracy, zero paperwork. So, if somebody came to us within 24 hours, we're on the phone with them. 
shortly thereafter, they're in the in an office with a psychiatrist, MD, getting an initial diagnosis, and then they put them into an individually tailored treatment program. And usually, it takes about three to six months for somebody to to get back to the best version of themselves. But if you're the VA and you have to be a steward of a good steward of tax dollars, you're put in a position where you have to have bureaucracy. You have to have paperwork. You have to ensure that not only are you treating folks, but that you're also being a good steward of, of tax dollars. And that can become, in a massive bureaucracy like the VA, a massive challenge to overcome. Some of the healthcare in the VA is the best in the country once you're in it. It's getting into it that can be a real challenge. And at Headstrong, we have the luxury of we are zero bureaucracy. You know, if somebody comes to us and they need help, we're going to treat them. Um, and, and we make it that simple. How many veterans have you, has higher purpose helped get jobs? So uh, the short answer is, I don't know how many. Okay. Yeah, sure. I'm sure. A lot of, a lot of the companies we work with, um, many of them don't have ways of tracking that. I know that we've helped, you know, well over 50,000 veterans with employment. Um, but how many have actually gotten hired? I, I have no idea. Um, it's, it's very, very difficult for us to track that. Sure. Well, that's still a staggering number that, you know, at least you guys did your part, right? With 50,000 veterans, you know, yeah, I'm sure it's hard to track all of that. You're also on the advisory board of the international refugee assistance project, correct? Yes. Yeah. Before I ask you a question about a New York times op-ed that you wrote last year, that is kind of in the same you know, vein as this. What does the International Refugee Assistance Project do and why are you involved in it? So I'm involved in it because if you've ever met the executive director, Becca Heller, there is no way to not be involved in it. I mean, awesome. she is just a remarkable, remarkable force of nature and change. Um, and you really, like as soon as you meet her, you have no choice but to just want to do everything she asks of you to do. Um, Becca Heller is a young woman who graduated from Yale Law School, could have gone on to earn hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars in billable hours at any law firm. And instead, she chose to uh, continue work, working at a nonprofit she helped founded at Yale that provided uh, pro bono legal services to refugees. Initially, it was Iraqi and Afghan refugees, um, and they've now expanded it to, to all refugees. And I'm just, I'm deeply proud of the work Becca does and, and the work that organization does. Sounds like I need to uh, contact Becca and get her on the show. I would be happy to put you guys in touch. She is, she is remarkable. I shared last week that we are doing a two-month partnership with our friends at Scout Books. Every week, you'll hear from someone on their team about why they do what they do. This week, you'll get to hear from CEO and co-founder Laura Whipple. Here she is. It's not a sustainable business if the community isn't sort of uplifted by what we're doing. So we, we are trying to give back to our local community be supportive in causes that we care about more nationally. And then we want to take care of the people that are in our environment. So that's that's our staff. That's the customers that we work with. We want to be in a positive relationship with the vendors that we work with, with our neighbors. It's really trying to find, I like to call them win-win-win situations where there aren't 
no one's losing out, but by working together, we're actually all gaining. We are just finishing a project that will be discussed later, I guess, the, the US, US project that is a collaboration with other Portland-based B Corp companies where they interview members of their team who have immigrated to the United States to shed light on their experience, to show the value that they are contributing to our B Corp community, but our Portland community, and just in general to the U.S. economy, it's really trying to shine a light on how valuable our immigrants are. And there's been a lot of maligning of immigrants in recent policies and practices and that is definitely something that we oppose and feels very counter to the Scout Books mission, which is to be a format and a business model that's inclusive and like a way to invite people to be creative, invite them to produce their own content, invite them to make a book project that they can share. Remember, you can get 15% off your order at scoutbooks.com by using the code GIVEADAM in all caps at checkout. That's GIVEADAM in all caps at checkout. I can't wait to share more with you next week. Now, back to the show. Last year, President Trump implemented, in my view, I don't know, I don't know you very well, so I don't know entirely what I'm getting into with this question, but in, in my view, he implemented a very tragic immigration ban um, that just just consistently has been carried out pretty poorly. Um, and I say this coming from someone who I've I spent a good chunk of my life, up until recently, half my life living outside the US, traveling abroad, spending a lot of time with the kinds of people that can no longer get into this country, right? And so you wrote a New York Times op-ed last year called Allies in Combat Now Unwanted. Tell me about that op-ed as much or as little as you want to. And, and what are your thoughts? A lot of the people listening to this show are very interested in helping and serving and loving immigrants and refugees well. I'm very involved. We currently live in Nashville, Tennessee, very involved in the refugee immigrant community here, just making them feel at home, making them feel welcome, trying to get them acclimated to life in the U.S., what are your thoughts on what's currently happening with immigrants and refugees and how, more importantly, how can we move forward um, as a country, as civilians? How do we, what's our part in making them feel wanted, not unwanted? So as I mentioned earlier, I, I come from a, a Jewish family. And uh, a couple, I think it was last week or two weeks ago, I had an opportunity to go to uh, the Jewish Museum in downtown New York in Battery Park um, for an evening honoring Holocaust survivors. And uh, a, a remarkable organization um, that helps capture their stories and brings some of the, the the last surviving and living Holocaust survivors to classrooms to tell their stories. And there's a woman who spoke who uh, was put into um, the camps. I think she was 11 or 12 years old, lost her entire family. And she asked a question and she said, if, if the Holocaust was happening today, would we as a country be opening our doors to Jews who are fleeing the Holocaust? You know, I think sadly, the answer is, is we probably wouldn't. And a lot of folks in this country would not be opening um, our, our doors. And, and that has always been the strength of America is we have the benefit of, of being a country of immigrants, of people who are scrappy and who are survivors and who do everything that it takes 
to leave their circumstance and come to another country in search of a better life and then build one here. And that, that rising tide has served America well since you know our founding days. I had the benefit when I was uh, in the Marine Corps, I, had the, I, I got to work with a remarkable translator named Abud Al-Kafaji, who was 55, 60 years old. He looked like Geppetto from, uh, from Pinocchio, <laughs> sweet. And he was my eyes, my ears. He kept us safe. He helped us build relationships with local city council leaders, with tribal leaders, with the local community. And in the town that I lived in when I was in Iraq, uh, Nasr wa Salaam, we were never attacked. We were attacked outside the city. We were attacked when we went into Fallujah. We were hit with IEDs outside the city. But in the city, we were never attacked. Other units were. But I believe that the reason we weren't attacked was because of the relationships we had developed with local leaders, local people. And those were developed because of Abu al-Kafaji, whose skills kept us safe. In 2006, I got an email from Abu's family and from Abu that uh, a severed dog head had been left on his doorstep with a note that said, if you don't leave, you guys are going to be next. A Shia militia had found out that he was a translator. Three of his four daughters were also translators with U.S. and coalition forces. Um, and so they fled to Jordan. And um, I then started working to get them to the U.S. I had an opportunity to then testify on active duty before the U.S. Senate to help bring them over here. Uh, and then they arrived in June of 2007. And Abud uh, passed away about six years ago to cancer. Um, but I got to be with by his side when he passed away. And his daughters are doing remarkably well. One is an NYPD officer. Another is going into the NYPD. A third is a nurse. Uh, the fourth is is living in Poland. And um, one of the when when Abud came here, I was trying to find him a job. And um, I had met uh, Robert Morgenthau, who was the longest serving uh, district attorney for the city of New York. He had worked with Robert F. Kennedy. He had been a World War II. He is a World War II veteran. I think he's now in his 90s. But Robert Morgenthau is a is just a gem of a human being, and he wanted to meet a boot. And so I brought a boot to meet him, and he said, I'm going to give you a job working in the, the DA's office for the city of New York. And I looked at him, and I said, why are you doing this? And he said, when he was in uh, World War II, he was a, a Navy officer aboard the USS Lansdale, and the ship was sunk by a German U-boat at night. And there was a Coast Guard cutter at the time. The Coast Guard was also deployed overseas in World War II that was sent to rescue them, but it was at night. And the, co- the captain of the Coast Guard vessel turned his lights on to pick survivors up out of the Mediterranean. And now one of the standard operating procedures, one of the SOPs for military ships is if there's U-boats, enemy fi- ships, you don't turn your lights on at night. It gives away your position. But the captain of the ship decided to do it because he knew that there were men in the water, sailors in the water who needed to be saved, and he was going to put himself at risk and his ship at risk in order to pull them out. And when he pulled Robert Morgenthau out of the Mediterranean, Robert Morgenthau asked him, why did you turn your lights on? And the ship's captain said, because it was the right thing to do. Mm. And he then looked at me and said, I'm hiring a boot because it's the right thing to do. And, you know, what does this country stand for if we're not standing by the translators who put themselves at great risk to serve alongside and keep our forces tra- safe. I mean, Abud wore the Marine Corps uniform in combat. What else do we need to say in order to say to somebody that they are welcome to come to this great country? That's a, an incredibly meaningful story. I love that little bit that the captain said in that, 
that this guy who hired a boot said like because it's the right thing to do like i'm always i kind of get lost in like a fantasy dreamland of like what would the world look like if we all every day you know with as many decisions and things that we encounter in a day if we just said no this is the right thing to do like what 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 would we look like our neighbors our neighborhoods the homeless the veterans you know what i'm saying yeah. like we're in, we're we face so many things that um well i'm doing i'm doing an experiment right i have 3 kids i have a 12 year old who's perfect from my wife's first marriage <laughs> so genetically she's not mine and then we have two little ones who if they don't turn out half as good as the older one there's only one variable for why they're not perfect and that's that's me but the <laughs> the two little ones are about 16 months apart and you know they they fight they want the same toy um and so I'm doing an experiment. I'm not sure how it's going to work out yet, but with the older one is four, the younger one is about to be three, Wolf in India. Wolf is the four-year-old boy, India's three-year-old girl, where when one of them wants the other's toy and they're not sharing, instead of forcing them to share, instead of like forcing them to share the toy, just trying to say like, what's the right thing to do? You know, yeah. and it, I, they might be too young to understand it, but I started doing it this weekend and you get to see that the gears start to in their brains and it starts to take a hold. What's what's the right thing to do? Is it to share with your sister? I mean, you have how many? Do you need to play with all four dinosaur toys? You know, right. maybe to do is to share two of them. No, I'm with you. I mean, we have three kids. They're four, five, and six. Like, I get that dynamic. That you know, but and they might not be getting it. But my wife and I are already doing very similar things on a daily basis with our kids. It's not forcing it's actually letting them make the decision and right now they're making a lot of bad decisions but they will learn they will learn over time as they start to see the world in a different light as they start growing up they will understand more why we're doing things that way and not forcing them to do stuff because that just that doesn't help anyone really to say no give it to them or you know you know you have to share that's just not super helpful right so we're trying to get them i think you and i are on the right track by doing that at such an early age, I think the reason people don't do it later on is because they weren't asked that question until they were 20, 25, and 30 to consider life through the lens of what's the right thing to do. And so let's, we might fail at it, you and I and our wives, but like, let's just give it, a, let's give it a shot, right? Yeah, exactly. You got to try. Let's start to wrap things up. I've got a couple more questions here. One is, so I would say 98% of the people listening are not in the military, have never been in the military, might not, probably won't go into the military, but there are so many things. Um, I'm one of them. You know, I, I, I admire so much about the work that you and so many others do, but that's not my calling in life. I have a different calling, but there's so much to learn. I learned so much from, you know, guys like Jocko Willink and, and, and you and others. There's so much to learn about leadership, about discipline and a million other topics. So the people listening to this podcast want to make a difference in the world. They either are giving a damn or they want to give a damn. They want to give more dams. Whatever the case may be, people are interested in making an impact, living life on purpose. So from your experience, with that in mind, in the things that you're currently doing in your experience, give two or three pieces of advice for someone listening that wants to, they need a little spark to help them get off their ass, to get moving, to get going, to for them to f start figuring out what it is they want to do. Give us two or three pieces of advice from your experience. So I'll give one sort of big piece of advice, okay. and that don't do it alone, right, mm. is, is really find remarkable people. The things that I've been most successful at in life 
it's been because I've been one of, I mean, for Headstrong, I'm one of five co-founders. For Task and Purpose, I'm one of three co-founders. For Higher Purpose, I'm one of two co-founders. Don't go it alone. Find people that you want to work with who are passionate, who you don't want to let down or disappoint. When we were building MARSOC, the first Marine Special Operations Unit, our commanding officer was a guy named Colonel Pete Petronzio, um, who like Colonel Willie Buell and like Coach Cullen, they're all sort of cut from the same cloth. These are guys who were, you know, second fathers, second, they were mentors. Um, and they're people who I would never want to let down. And Pete used to sit around with the, his core group of officers and we used to sit around and we'd talk about the thing. And the thing was something we were going to all do together when we got out. And we didn't, we didn't care what the thing was. The thing could be making unicorn plush toys. It really didn't matter. The thing was is that we were going to do this thing together. And that's the advice I'd give is like it, the thing doesn't matter. You know, what matters is who you are doing it with and that you collectively find the work that you're doing meaningful. And if you – and you're never going to solve the problems of the world with a whiteboard and a spreadsheet. You need to – get that team together, sort of figure out generally what it is that, what the problem is you're trying to solve, and then just get started on interacting with the messiness of the real world. That is ridiculously fantastic advice. And I would add on to that, the accountability that comes with doing things with others, right? Because most humans, uh, because we have so much going on and we, we're very good at making excuses for ourselves, you know, if, if, if we go at it alone, we see a problem that we want to fix. We start going after it. We encounter distractions. We encounter obstacles in the way. Usually, one or two obstacles or distractions in, we give up, right? Because no one's there to keep us accountable. No one's there to push us forward. We end up back on the couch to binge watch another Netflix show. And so having having that team around us is the accountability most of the time that we need to keep going when things get tough. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. It's the accountability and there are going to be obstacle obstacles that you encounter that you can't overcome by yourself, that you don't have the skills yeah, for, totally. you don't have the abilities to do. I mean, when we first started Headstrong, I didn't even know that mental health care was a real thing. I just knew we needed to do something, mm. but I was fortunate to, to have these two successful finance guys who knew how to raise money. And I was success, and I was fortunate enough to know a remarkable psychiatrist at Cornell Medical Center named Dr. Ann Beter, who knew basically everything about mental health care. And together, we had a problem to solve, and we had you know two sides of of the coin that we needed in order to start addressing it. But no way could I have ever even taken a, a nibble of that that problem without not only them providing the accountability to keep going, but them also providing the expertise, resources, and capabilities to solve those problems. Yeah, that's really helpful. Second to last question, penultimate question is, okay, so someday, let me paint the scenario real quickly. Someday you're going to die. I hope it's 50, 60, 70 years from now, but you know, inevitably we're all going to die. For some odd reason, I've been asked to give your eulogy. So all of the people that you've helped over the years, your wife, your kids, your family, everybody's there to honor, mourn, celebrate your life. What do you hope that I would stand up in front of them and say about your life and legacy on that day? You know, the only thing that matters to me at the end of the day is that I come home to my wife and that she's proud of me. And that's really all that that matters to me. And uh, so... What would I hope to be said is that I was 
a loving husband, that I was a loving and caring father, um, that I was a good son to my folks. Um, and I could work on being a better son to my folks. So I'm going to, I got some work to do on that in the next 50, 70 years. Hopefully there'll be a lot of that long too. But I think that's, that's really what, what at the end of the day, that's, that's what matters. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. As we wrap up this conversation and people go figure out who you are and what they want to, you know, check out, point them to some things. What do you want them to go see? Social media handles, websites. What would you love for them to go check out as they leave this conversation? Yeah. Thank you for asking that question. So uh, go to taskandpurpose.com, sign up for our newsletter. Uh, We've got a phenomenal team of writers and content creators. 75% of our team are military service members and veterans. Um, and we are really working hard to tell stories that matter. We sometimes do it in a somewhat irreverent way, but this is straight from the horse's mouth. So taskandpurpose.com. If you're interested in hiring military talent or learning more about that, you can reach out to us at hirepurpose, H-I-R-E-purpose.com. If you want to connect to spouses, that's millspousefest.com. And then finally, you know, if you're interested in supporting the work we do on the mental health care front, that's the Headstrong Project, and we can be found at getheadstrong.org. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Zach, for being here. This was truly a phenomenal conversation. Very grateful for the work that you're doing. Uh, keep up the good work. Terrific. Thank you so much. This has been a, a great conversation, and uh, thank you. I hope you enjoyed listening to that conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. All the links he mentioned will be in the show notes. You can find those show notes, this episode, and all other episodes by going to nicklapara.com forward slash let's give a damn. That's nicklapara.com forward slash let's give a damn. As always, this show is edited and produced by Chad Snavely. Hit me up on social media. I'm Nick Lapara everywhere and we're let's give a damn everywhere. I can't wait to spend more time with you next week. Much love to you and yours. Bye for now.